Good morning, people of God. It is such a joy to gather with God's people to sing his praises, to be under his word. Uh, We are always under God's word. That's what guides our lives. That's what gives us our worldview. That is what sustains us and nourishes us. And that's why we do this in our service. That's why Christians have done this for uh, many, many, many centuries preaching the scriptures because it is through God's word that we are sanctified. Do you remember in John 17 where Jesus prays to the Father? We want to know what is Christ's heart for us? And he prays to the Father that we would be sanctified. And he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so we believe that as a church and we gather ourselves at this point in our service, and really throughout all of our service, we gather ourselves around under the Word of God. And our passage for today, if you want to go ahead and go there in your Bibles, is Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And for those who are visiting with us, maybe this is your first time, or maybe you've just come recently, uh, we are going through a series on the book of Exodus. It is uh, our practice to go through books of the Bible, and sometimes we go through large chunks like the Sermon on the Mount within the Gospel of Matthew, for example. But it is our practice to go through books of the Bible sequentially, and we are now going through the book of Exodus. We've had two sermons so far, and we are now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. From time to time, people ask me, I guess this is a question uh, that preachers just get, uh, what is your favorite part of the Bible? <laughs> uh, every Christian kind of gets that question. I mean, you've probably been, been asked that question before, but I think maybe it's a particular uh, it's a preacher question. What is your favorite part of the Bible? What is, what is your favorite book or story in the Bible? And for a long time now, my answer has been the same. And it is a very quick response. I don't really have to think about it too much. Sometimes people ask, what's your favorite verse? That's a little different. But what's your favorite part of the Bible? My answer is the story of Joseph in Egypt at the end of Genesis. So it was a great joy and honor to be able to preach through that a few years ago. But this is, I would say, my favorite story in the Bible. This story of Joseph is such a vivid illustration of the power, and I would even say the extent, of God's providence. His ability to control space and time, uh, his sovereignty over all things, to move history and human hearts, yes, and human hearts, in accordance with his sovereign will. That's what that story is about. It's about a lot of little things, and it is about the, obviously what God is doing in the history of Israel. But above all, that large story spanning from chapter 37 of Genesis all the way to chapter 50 is about God's sovereignty, his providence overall, his ability to govern down to the smallest details. It shows God in his wisdom, goodness, faithfulness, and protection, working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. I I think of the book of Esther as well, how uh, God is, there's there's not uh, the, the sorts of stories of God's obvious 
a power and presence like you have, say, in Genesis, for example. God is behind the scenes. He's working behind the scenes, but you can't help but to read a book like Esther and say God is everywhere in that book, everywhere active, but he is doing it behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. You know, stories like this in the Bible, books like this, leave us in a state of awe. That's really the effect, I think, of a story like that of Joseph, is it leaves us in a state of awe. It leaves us walking away saying, the Lord is my God. It it draws our hearts to trust in this God, to believe him for all that we need in this life, to see him also as worthy of all of our worship. What else would we do with these little lives we've been given than worship this God, the God who is so sovereign and so good and who carries out his wise purposes so perfectly and totally, worthy of all of our praise. So if you're wondering why we're here this morning, it's not just to hang out. It's not to just uh, get a little singing in for the week. It's not to uh, even just have some, some camaraderie. It's to worship. We're here to worship because we have tasted and seen, because we've come to know this God as worthy of all praise. Well, we see the same thing that we saw with Joseph. We see the same thing in our passage for today. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We find it all throughout the Bible, but this one particularly stands out as well. God's powerful providence at work as he governs and shapes history down to the smallest occurrences of daily life. We may tend to think about God's providence just on sort of a global scale. Yes, God is in control of the nations. Yes, God is in control of the the history of his people collectively understood. And all of this is true, of course. But God's providence extends to the minutia of daily life, to reeds and Rivers. He shapes all of history. He governs all of history down to the tiny details. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Boy Moses. You'll see as we go into verse 11 of Exodus 2, we, we see the man Moses. The, uh, Moses, it's interesting. Uh, Moses is the writer. And just consider how little attention he gives to himself. I was recently listening to a podcast and uh, the person was reflecting on John MacArthur and reflecting on uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a mentor from afar for for John MacArthur. And one of the comments there was just how, how little these men spoke of themselves in their preaching. And they were intentional about that because it just simply was not about them. And the same is true here with Moses. We see how he is just very quickly going over his childhood. He's very quickly going over his adulthood. He's getting to the bush. He's getting to the Lord coming to him. He's getting to the Lord's deliverance. So you could, you could imagine an entire book, maybe a five-volume treatise, a five-volume history on the life of Moses. And so Moses writes it out and gives you all the details, but he doesn't do that because Exodus is about the God of Israel. It's not about Moses. 
So we see just in these 10 verses, his entire childhood summed up, the boy Moses. If you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus chapter two, verses one to 10. And what I want to do just to set this up clearly is to go back to verse 15 to set up what's going on here with Moses. So we'll begin in chapter one, verse 15, and we'll read our way through to chapter two, verse 10. This is God's word, perfect and profitable for his people. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now for our text for this morning. Now a man from the house of Levi went And took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the riverbank, by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And then you see where it goes next, verse 11, one day when Moses had grown So we're looking at his childhood. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to God in prayer and ask that he would bless this time of instruction in his word, that he would use his word as he promises to do throughout his word in our hearts, that he would use it to conform us to the image of his son, as Jesus prays in John 17, to sanctify us, make us more and more holy, more and more consecrated to God's service to God's kingdom, to God's work in the world. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here 
We're grateful to be your people. God, you have called us out of darkness. You have transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. You have granted us uh, your great and precious promises. You have given us all that we need for life and godliness. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have held us in your hand and kept us to this moment that we would not fall away, that we would belong to you, that we would live for your praise. God, we ask you to be with us now as we enter into the details of this text which you have given to us by inspiration of your spirit. Lord, not just an ancient story to draw out morals from, but the living word of God and the word that is for our instruction, the word that is about Christ, the word that gives us what we need to be fully equipped, ready for every good work. We thank you, God, that you have brought us to this moment, that you have put us under your word now. We ask that it would be blessed by your spirit, that you would work among us today. We pray for our children, the younger ones as they're back, uh, being instructed, Lord, that you would continue to shape their worldview, that you would continue to shape their understanding, that they would have a God-centered worldview, that they would recognize that you are the creator that they would put their trust in you for their own souls, for their own lives, for their own trials, that they would look to you and not to all the idols of this world and not to themselves. Father, would you do the same for us as we gather here and would you just speak to us, Father, as we hear your word preached. We thank you for each other. We thank you that we are part of this family. Lord, if, if there is anyone here today who is unconverted, not born again, who is still in their sins. Lord, that if they were to die today, there would be no hope for them. They would die in sin and they would stand under your wrath forever. Father, we pray that the reality of that, of of hell, of judgment, of divine wrath and even fury against sinners would be made clear to their hearts and minds, Lord, that you would show them and convict them and that they would see their great need, their one great need for a Savior. Father, would we this morning who are here who've been saved by your grace, would we realize and celebrate our great need for a Savior and would we take delight in Jesus? We ask that you would do this now. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So as with the Joseph story, this passage about Moses' birth and upbringing is saturated with God's providence, as I said earlier. And by the way, this is a theme that we can never grow tired of. Uh, One of the things that I've been doing recently, I've been asked to do for the website, is to give key words after each sermon, and and so that those key words can be searchable and and the, you know thematic. There can be a, a way to search different topics from within the sermons. Uh, and you know one of the things that I've discovered so funny is when you're in a book like this, you, you really just get uh, some of. There's a handful of great themes that just kind of get constantly repeated and get fleshed out more and more. And so it's as though these great themes just get spun 
spun around as a diamond and you see the different facets of them. As an example, Genesis, the great theme of God's faithfulness. And we saw that all throughout the book or the great theme of God's promise all throughout the book. And so once again, as with the last couple of weeks, I'll, I'll be adding the word providence to that list uh, this afternoon of key words. But this is a, a theme that we constantly need to be reminded of and constantly need to have before us because particularly in our day, we live in a secular and materialistic culture. We live in a, a godless world as far as the world is concerned. We live in a world where basically what matters is what you can see. It's what you can touch. It's what you can taste and smell. What matters is the physical. It is a materialistic world. And this worldview is pervasive. It's everywhere. And it has infiltrated so much of Christianity. So there is just the constant need for us to remember that we need to see what we cannot see. We need to see what with our very eyes we can't see. God is invisible and we can't see him, but everywhere around us we see his providence, his sovereignty, his control, his guidance, his governance, his powerful work. And we're we're, we're kind of programmed within our culture to think otherwise. Stories like this put us back into the biblical universe. They put us back into reality. So let me give you three stepping stones to help us walk through this text this morning. These are our three sermon points. If you're a note taker and you want to write these down, uh, by the way, you know, people do notes differently, so don't feel uh, unsanctified if you don't take notes or don't take extensive notes. <laughs> people are different. But if you are taking notes, these are the sermon points that we have today to help us navigate and walk through and understand the various component parts of this story of the boy Moses. So here they are, placed on the river. First, verses 1 to 4, pitied by the princess, verses 5 to 6, and then finally, as we get to the climax of this little story, protected from the infanticide, as we'll see in verses 7 to 10. So let's begin with placed on the river. And for that, I want to put verses 1 to 4 back in our view. So let's read those again. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Now a man... From the house of Levi, went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. It's papyrus. It's a basket made of papyrus. And daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. This, is, this, this little bit is just filled with drama. The Bible has the very best stories. By the way, I should just say, I recently read a quote by Leo Tolstoy where he was, he was talking about the, the story, uh, the, the great Russian novelist. He was talking about the story of Joseph being the greatest story in human literature, in all of human history. The Bible just has the best stories you can find. Anywhere in the world. And they are true. 
And they are about Christ. They are for our edification. And they are entirely without error. So why are you reading other stuff and ignoring the Bible? Think about it for a second. We read and we read and we read and there's great stuff to read and we ought to read widely. But why is the Bible so neglected? Why is the word of God so neglected by the people of God? We will sit and read all kinds of things for hours on end to entertain ourselves and inform ourselves and help ourselves and comfort ourselves, but God's word sits neglected. Keep in mind, people of God, that this is God's power for our lives. And it is intriguing, interesting, and filled with wonder. Last week, we saw the terrible situation that the Israelites were facing in Egypt. Brutal slavery, oppression, and the killing of their baby boys. This is, a, this is a, as, as bad as it gets. By the way, just, just think for a moment. You think whatever you're facing right now is bad. And of course, we feel these trials. Get a little bit of sand in your eye and you just can't function. It just shuts you down. The littlest thing can, can, in a sense, shut us down. We feel the weight of these trials. But keep in mind the depth of suffering that God's people have faced throughout history. And see it here. Slavery, oppression, and the killing of their baby boys. The weeping that we see with Rachel in the New Testament, in the Gospels, was for the whole people, all the Israelite baby boys, to be killed. Following the death of Joseph and the emergence of a new ruler, the Egyptians became fearful of the growing Israelite population. As their numbers multiply, so do Egyptian fears. So every little bit of multiplication of the people of God in the land of the Israelites in Egypt is accompanied by this great multiplication of the dread and the fear of the Egyptians. What, are, what is this mass of foreign people on our soil going to do if we go to war? Maybe they'll join our enemies. They'll try to take possession of the land, and there's discussion over the translation. Will they try to leave the land or will they try to take possession of the land? There's fear. So they put the Israelites under hard service. Then later they try to have the midwives secretly kill off all the newborn baby boys. We talked about that last week. We have this secret plot. Go and get these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, and get these, these chief chiefs of the midwives, these two ladies who oversee all the midwives, and have them to kill the baby boys when they come out of the womb, to do this secretly. But of course, as we read last week, this plan does not work. The midwives fear God. They won't do it. And the Pharaoh resorts to widespread open killing. He resorts to a policy of infanticide. This is a national policy of infanticide. What was before a secret plot has now become a national policy. 
chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is what's going on when this little baby is born. This suffering is going on throughout the Israelite population, the whole Israelite population. And what chapter 2 does is zoom in on one family in particular during this crisis. Now that's striking to us because at this point, we sort of leave that context. We leave that mass suffering. We forget that there's so many other homes filled with, with the heartache and the pain and the distress of what's going on in Egypt. The text zooms in on this one particular family, the family of baby Moses, the future deliverer of Israel. The mother and father are from the tribe of Levi. Levi, as you may remember, is Jacob's third son by Leah. He's Jacob's third son, period, but also Jacob's third son by Leah. We won't get into the details, but you can go back and read uh, how Jacob had four wives, and it's quite, uh, once again, that's quite a dramatic story. All throughout the Bible, we get these sorts of things. But you can go back and you can read how Jacob in his uncle Laban's house has these four wives, and he has all 12 sons through these four wives. Levi is one of them, the third. And we are told later in chapter 6, verse 20, that their, their names are Amram and Jacobed. This is Moses' father and mother. They already have two children, a three-year-old boy named Aaron and an older daughter named Miriam. And you, you'll see these throughout the first five books of the Bible. Uh, and we'll see Aaron. He plays a big role in Exodus itself. But Aaron and Miriam are Moses' brother and sister. And they're already on the scene. You don't see this from the text aside from the, the sister. But Moses had a, a brother who was three years older. These are ordinary Hebrews from the tribe of Levi. And they are living under the weight of immense suffering. You know, we come to this family, really there's, there's just nothing special about this family. You don't read about this family and think, oh, okay, those people. These are just some of the Israelites. This is a, a man from Levi and a woman from Levi who get married and have a baby. So what are the parents to do with their baby boy in the face of this infanticide. Verse two says that she saw that he was a fine or beautiful or good child and that she hid him for three months. Now this is interesting because you think, well, any baby to mama is fine, beautiful, and good. I mean, every baby is cute. I think we would all say they're cute in different ways. But every baby is cute, but to the mama, especially so. Fine, beautiful, good child. So it's a little weird when we read this. Oh, he's a beautiful one. I think I'm going to try to keep him. Right? That's good. You read it and you think that that's the way it, that's the way it reads. And, and it kind of leaves you scratching your head a little bit. So what is going on here? It's unclear what she sees in him. But some throughout history including the Jewish historian Josephus, thought that there was some special revelation about the boy given to the parents. 
And the truth is, we just don't have that in the text. We don't know, so that's the reason for all of the speculation. But as I was thinking about this, this identification of him as fine or somehow unique or special is reminiscent, if you remember, of Noah's father's reaction when he was born. Uh, Maybe you do or don't remember this. Maybe you've read over this. But do you remember as we're going through the genealogy in chapter 5 of Genesis, when, when it comes to Noah, his father has some sort of reflection on the uniqueness of his son Noah. We're not told why. We're not told that God revealed anything to Noah's father. We're not told that there was some sort of, you know, sign or anything like that. We just have the reflection of the dad. And it says this, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Well, what's going on there? Why why does Noah's dad have this this sense that there is something unique, something special about his son? And and I would argue that there's there's probably a parallel here in the life of Moses' parents. And we we can kind of pick this up, I think, a little bit from the New Testament. Hebrews 11.23, by faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So, so you can't help but to see uh, the significance of what they see in Moses. Acts chapter seven, verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And so I think we already take from this, not that Moses is just this exceptionally out of this world cute kid, but rather that there is something going on here that is recognized by the people of God, however it is shown. And this uniqueness, and I would say connection with Noah, is all the more seen in what happens next. When she could no longer hide him, she makes for him a basket. Well, guess what? The Hebrew word here is not basket. The Hebrew word is ark. It's the same word used in the story of Noah. Isn't that fascinating? That's amazing. It's the exact same word. Noah uh, is put on an ark and little baby Moses is put on an ark. And what's interesting is if you search this word in the whole Old Testament, in the whole Hebrew Bible, guess what? It only appears in Exodus chapter 2 and then throughout the Noah narrative. This word is reserved for these two events. It is only here and with Noah. This is a vessel of deliverance made waterproof with tar and pitch, and then placed among the reeds along the edge of the river. And presumably, this is a place that would have been known to to not be frequented by crocodiles, as we know there are lots of those in Egypt. But this, it seems, would have been a place for people who live among the Nile and know that's crocodile country, that's not, that's a nice little safe place over there, put in a place where there were presumably no or few crocodiles. This word ark reminds us 
that this is a key moment of God's deliverance. So it doesn't just connect us back to Noah and we say, ooh, neat, interesting, that's great, and then we move on. But rather we are being told that this is a key moment in God's deliverance plan. There will be a rescue. And this rescue will be similar in significance to what happened with Noah in the flood. In other words, what we're being told is that this is a key moment in the storyline of the Bible. You know, one of the things we need to be better at as Bible readers is those who read one book. One book. The Bible is one book. Now, the Bible also is a library of books. That's, that's absolutely true. We have all different kinds of literature, different genres of literature within the Bible, different kinds of books. It, it, it's a lifetime of joy and riches reading God's word. But ultimately, the Bible is one book. It's one story. It's one meta narrative, One great story with one great character and one great center, and that is Christ. And so as we read this story, we are meant to think God is moving forward the story of Christ. God is preserving and protecting the line of Christ. Christ is the seed who will crush the head of the serpent. He's the one who will remake the world. He's the deliverer. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. What will come of Judah? What will come of Judah's line if a deliverer is not raised up. In other words, we're not just talking about a baby boy. Many of those, unfortunately, we must assume have already been thrown into the Nile. And many of those are at this very moment presumably being thrown into the Nile. And days later will be thrown into the Nile. So what's going on? Why so much to do about this one boy? Because this is God's means of bringing salvation to his people. This is God's means of ensuring that there are people from different tribes, tongues, and nations sitting in a building on 1608 Highway in Noonan, praising him all these thousands of years later. That's what God is doing in this story. It's not merely about this one baby boy. It is about his entire plan of redemption that culminates in people from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing around the throne of God, worshiping him into eternity. That's the gravity of what's going on in this story. So Moses' mother places him on the river, a woman whose name, Jacobed, means Yahweh is glorious. Isn't that amazing? Her name means Yahweh is glorious, or the Lord is glorious. This is a woman whose heart is filled with faith in her God, as we just read from those New Testament passages from Hebrews 11. A woman who defied the Pharaoh's evil edict as long as she could and has now entrusted her boy into God's providential hands. And the sister waits nearby to see what will happen. So what's going on here? I mean, it really does leave us asking lots of questions. Are they hoping to hide him during the day or periodically and care for him when needed? Is this just a way to hide him so that he's not discovered in the home? Are they hoping that some Egyptian lady will find him and show compassion 
Or do they have a particular person in mind? Are they leaving the boy to be found by someone, some lady in particular, whom they know will be kindly disposed toward the child, whom they know will be tenderhearted and show compassion towards the child? Well, it's interesting to read commentators because they all disagree. They all disagree. It's, it's very speculative. We just don't know. We're not told in the text. Back to the main idea. Moses is rushing to the Lord. He, he's getting to God's deliverance. He's not interested in giving you all the juicy bits about his life, his growing up and how it went down. We just don't have the answers to these questions. What we do know from Hebrews 11 is that these actions are tied to their faith in Yahweh. Whatever they're doing, they're doing it as those who believe God. They're doing it as those who believe God's promises, who believe God's word, who have put their trust in God, who hope in God. And I think we just need to pause here and remember this. Faith is going strong during this time of suffering. Now, obviously, it, it, the people are, are, we see this when Moses comes on the scene and, and he begins to talk with the elders and he begins to talk with the people and he approaches Pharaoh. When we see all that, the people are disheartened. The people are beat down under the cares of life. We've been there before. Maybe you're there right now. Beat down under these cares. But what we need to see is that God the Holy Spirit is preserving faith in the hearts of God's people during this ordeal. During this time of immense suffering, Yahweh is still glorious to Jacobed's mom and dad. And he is still worthy of trust by these parents during this time of incredible distress. So, what happens next? Well, that brings us to our second point pitied by the princess. And for that, let's look at verses five to six. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Well, it just so happens, right? Just so happens that the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to the river. Coincidence, yes? No. As I said before, it's impossible to know whether or not this was planned. We just don't know. And if we went around and we studied it and talked about it, we'd probably fall in different places uh, and think about, you know, what, 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 what's in their mind. Some have argued that she would be the last person a daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh likely could have had dozens of daughters, by the way. Some have argued that a daughter of Pharaoh would have been the absolute last person apart from, from Pharaoh himself whom these parents would have wanted to find their baby boy. Right? And that's compelling. There's just no way that they would want this to happen as it begins to happen. 
And now that's, that's persuasive in part. And then, and then others argue, no, no, no. There's, there's knowledge here of this particular princess. There's knowledge here of when she comes down. And this is strategically placed to intersect with her. Also compelling, right? Also persuasive. So we really just don't know. But either way, God's perfect providence is at work. The parents have trusted the Lord and they have placed this boy in an ark. And I can't help but to think that they're thinking of Noah. They've been told these stories. They've been told these traditions going all the way back to their fathers. Undoubtedly, she places him in an ark. What will happen is not really the question. That's not really what's on the mind of the parents and the sister. It's not what will happen. Instead, it is what will the Lord our God do? What will the Lord do? And so we read that this unnamed daughter of Pharaoh, this princess of Egypt, comes down to the river to bathe with her young women and a servant woman. And she enters these sacred waters, as the Egyptians saw it, as she does so, she sees something floating over by the edge, protected from floating away by the density of the reeds. This object there on the edge in the water. She sends her servant woman to grab it, and when she opens it, she finds, quite to her surprise, a baby. Now, maybe she had heard the cries coming from it earlier, and that's what caused her to look in that direction. We don't know. Did she, did she just see it? Or did she hear this little faint sound of a baby crying? We know they could get quite loud. Quite loud. I have a one-year-old. It wasn't too long ago that it was quite loud. Uh, it still is. But who knows? Is she hearing this loud crying coming from this baby? Or does she just see it? We don't know. But what we do know is that when she opens it, she notices that it is one of the Hebrew boys. And the baby is crying. Maybe it's his clothes. Maybe it's his circumcision, his complexion, the mere fact that he's in a container on the river. Hello. It's kind of obvious just by that fact. We don't know why she recognizes, but she does, that this is one of the Hebrew boys. And so what is her response? She could have quickly thrown the boy into the river. We need to feel the weight of that possibility as we come to this point in the narrative, we have to feel the weight of that possibility in the mind of Moses' sister, Miriam, as she's watching this. Maybe uh, an older kid, 6, 9, 12 years old, who knows. But we have to feel the weight of this in her mind. What is going to happen at this moment? The princess could have literally just said, oh, thrown the baby right into the river. She didn't. That was her father's order. After all, the Pharaoh is her father, and no one disobeys the godlike Pharaoh. We talked about that last week, the way that Pharaoh was seen among the Egyptians. But she doesn't act according to her father's evil, cruel directive. Instead, her heart is filled with compassion, with pity. She pities this baby. God has been at work in the circumstances and the timing. And now we need to see this. God is working in her heart. You know, we've talked about this a lot. 
God is not just sovereign over human bodies. He's not just sovereign over uh, matter. As though the, the immaterial part of our being, our souls, are sort of out of his hands. As you read some people and you think, well, God will work around you, but only you can do what you do on the inside. No, God is sovereign over everything, material and immaterial, both visible and invisible. He was sovereign over Satan's fall, Lucifer. And he was sovereign over the fall in the garden. And he's sovereign over every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. God is the governor of all that exists, both seen and unseen. And here we see God at work in the heart of this woman. Do you really believe, Christian, that God is this actively involved in the circumstances of your life? Do you really believe that? Once again, we can be secular people and not even know it. We can be functional secularists. We can be functional materialists. Do you really believe functionally, not intellectually, not abstractly, but functionally, practically in how you live, in how you speak, in how you think, in whether or not you worry in whether or not you grumble, in whether or not you give thanks. Do you really believe that God is this actively involved in the circumstances of your life? That the unseen hand of God is present and he's at work and we can rest. We can rest. Romans 15, 4 tells us that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And then Paul goes on there in Romans 15 to mention the encouragement of the scripture. So why is this text here? Why do we open our Bibles and find Exodus chapter 2 verses 1 to 10? Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but one of the ways is for our instruction today, Christians. For our instruction in faith, instruction in God's protection, his providence and his faithfulness, his goodness and his wisdom, his control, his sovereignty, to encourage us from the scriptures. Thirdly, we come to protected from the infanticide. As we come to the climax of this story, we see ultimately that Moses is protected from this killing of the male children. Look with me at verses 7 to 10. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So here we read that Miriam, Moses' sister, springs into action. Now this girl, however old she is, she's quite wise. She, she is, she's sharp. She is sharp. Moses' sister springs into action. She is 
quick to take advantage of this opportunity. She is quick to notice the providence of the God of her parents, who it seems she has embraced as her own. This God who is in control. We can only speculate about what's running through this girl's mind. Was she totally shocked and terrified when of all people she saw Pharaoh's daughter come down to the water? Did she think to herself, oh no, I've got to go get him. I've got to put him somewhere else. I've got to take him back. Or was this the plan all along? And she has, with her own eyes, watched God bless their plans. <gasps> it's, it's, it's Pharaoh's daughter, the one we were hoping would come down at this time. And she's down here at this time of day again. And she's bathing again. It, it worked. Just as God had blessed Abraham's servant's plans in Genesis 24 when he went to get a wife for Isaac. We don't know. But what we do know is that she wastes no time in recognizing God's providence at work. This is the opportunity. She sees the princess's pity and capitalizes on it. We're not told at this point that the princess begins to look over at her, at her servants and say, you know, I really would like to have this child for myself. We're not told anything like that. What we're told is that she seems to be overcome by significant amount of pity and compassion for this child. There's a tenderheartedness that is clearly present as she looks at this baby. So she takes advantage of it. She quickly approaches the princess and makes a proposal. How about I go get one of the Hebrew women? She doesn't say, I'll go get his mother. She doesn't go there. She just says, I'll go get a, one of the Hebrew nurses and they can come. She can come and nurse the child for you. Since your heart is so kindly disposed toward the child, why don't you keep him as your own and raise him as your son? That's the kind of Im implication of what she says. Oh yes, let me, let me go get some help for you. I'll go get a Hebrew nurse to care for him in these early years. Well, as with Joseph's proposal, Joseph's plan to Pharaoh to appoint a leading figure to oversee food distribution. You remember that, maybe? This plan, as with Joseph's, is accepted. And the Pharaoh's daughter says, go. This response exploding with God's providence. So the girl goes to her mother, Moses' mother, Jacobed, and brings her back to the princess. There's the mom. Can you imagine the scene? This is the baby's biological mother brought forward, standing before this princess who is going to take her baby. The princess instructs her to nurse the boy in these early years and she will even pay her wages. So this family is protected, given immunity, provided for, and most importantly, Moses gets to live you know, there's a way to read this story that's kind of, it's hard for us in the modern world. We, we read this story, oh no, this is like sanctioned kidnapping. We read this story and we think, this is, I mean, what? This is, no, you can't have my baby. This is my baby. You can't, but I don't think that's what Moses' mother would have been thinking. 
Moses' mother, who loved him dearly, is probably thinking, praise Yahweh, my baby will live. My baby will live. And even more, oh, even more, God, he will not have to live under the weight of oppression and slavery as he ages. That's a mother's heart for her child. She truly loves. You remember the wisdom of Solomon with the two women and one woman's baby dies and the other one says, that's mine, and they're fighting over it. And in the end, says, let's get a sword and cut it in half. And it's the real mother who says, no, 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 no. Let her have it, right? Same thing here. The life of the child is supreme over her own maternal instinct to have that baby for herself. If in this moment she would have grabbed little Moses and said, I'm taking him home. No, he would have gone in the river. He would have gone in the river. But that is not what happens. After a period of time, three to four years, but perhaps longer time for Moses' parents to tell him of the glory of Yahweh, After a period of time, Moses is officially adopted by the princess. And just as Joseph was, he is brought into the royal courts of Egypt. And I love Egyptian history, but one of the things I love about it is because it intersects so much with biblical history. I mean, you're seeing these amazing monuments and you're seeing all of this, all of these paintings and everything else. And you're realizing these are the sorts of things Joseph saw. These are the sorts of things Moses saw. This is the world of these men in the Bible, the way that it intersects with biblical history. Utterly pagan and demonic from top to bottom and beginning to end. Utterly Romans 1, worshiping created things. Man, animal, beasts, creeping things, all sorts of stuff. But it intersects with this history of God's People And here we see the God of the Hebrews is at work and he has once again infiltrated the highest ranks of human power. This is the thing we see about God. At the time, at this time, the Egyptians would have been the great world power. The Pharaoh would have been the uncontested, most powerful man on earth. And God, who is king of all, is just inserting his people as the sovereign Lord infiltrating the highest ranks of human power. There is absolutely no limit to God's providence. We see it with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. We see it with Esther and Mordecai in Persia. God's sovereign control. We see it with Cyrus's edict for the people to go back. All throughout the Bible, there is no limit to God's providence. In the end, all nations were preserved through Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the sons of Noah who got off of the ark. So to make the adoption official, she names the boy with an Egyptian name, Moses, but one that corresponds with the Hebrew for being drawn out. So it's interesting here that Moses' very name points to this kind of double role. He is, on the one hand, prince of Egypt, adopted son of the princess. And on the other hand, he is the deliverer of Israel. And so we see this embedded in his name. As we finish this morning, 
I want us to remember the circumstances of Jesus' birth and early childhood. Just as Moses' life was in jeopardy by the hand of Pharaoh, so too was Jesus' life in jeopardy by the hand of King Herod. But in both cases, God sovereignly protected. The plan of God cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. Yes, Moses was a great deliverer of God's people. But Moses was not the deliverer. Moses is a type of this Christ. This Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, who's protected as a baby by his father. A little picture Moses is of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who delivers his people, including Moses, from sin and death, the one who will one day remake the world. Throughout biblical history, God protected the line of Christ, and he pointed to him every step of the way. Isn't it amazing that God, throughout the Old Testament, he's not just protecting the line to Christ, he's also protecting the prophecies and the pointers. The whole infrastructure of the Old Testament points to Christ. Every aspect of it points to Christ. God is not just protecting his Christ. He is protecting the witness to his Christ. And today, we keep in mind that God protects us. Who are we? Who are we this morning? Sitting in this room, we are the body of Christ. We are joined to Christ. We have died with Christ, been raised with Christ. We have Christ's spirit living in us. We are Christ's sheep. We are in Christ's hand. We are in Christ Jesus our Lord. God protects us. He keeps us, those who are his. And it is this reality that led the Apostle Paul to say at the end of Romans 8 that nothing, height or depth or anything else in all creation, Death, life, all that he says there, nothing whatsoever will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just as God told Joshua, take heart, be courageous, we too take heart and are courageous knowing that God will keep us. God is sovereign and God is intimately involved in every tiny detail of our lives. Every misstep, every diagnosis, every suffering, he is in control. And one day, we will praise him for everything in our lives because we will recognize that it was all for his glory and for our good. This is the God we worship. This is the God we learn about in Exodus chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us this clarity about who you are and what you've, who you are and what you've done, God. You are sovereign. You are loving. You are kind. God, you have saved us. You have brought us out of the bondage of sin, death, hell. Lord, we give you praise this morning. We thank you that we are your people. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, would you bless our time? Would our hearts be filled with joy in the gospel? In Christ's name, amen.